The FDA approves over-the-counter naloxone, a nasal spray used in emergency situations to treat opioid overdoses. A federal judge in Texas strikes down an ACA provision that requires health plans to cover preventive care. North Carolina becomes the 40th state to expand Medicaid. And once again in America, children are murdered at the point of a gun in their school, this time in Tennessee. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. What's that famous quote about history? Those who can't remember the past are doomed to repeat it. Well, so much of the current political opposition to vaccines today didn't just happen yesterday or three years ago. Anti-vaxxers have a long, sordid history. Today, we're going back in history to understand the evolution of that history. We're talking about smallpox inoculation campaigns that divided the country back before it was even a country in the late 1700s. Smallpox is a gruesome, deadly disease. Think thousands of small, painful pustules, pox, all over your body as you writhe with a fever and pain. If you weren't one in three who died of smallpox, you were almost certain to bear the pitted scars for the rest of your days. Smallpox was eradicated in the U.S. in 1949, globally in 1980, but not before it took hundreds of millions of lives, 300 million in the 1900s alone. You know how we finally eradicated it? Vaccination and contact tracing. Sound familiar? The fact that we're more than 70 years since the eradication of smallpox in this country might have you think that it was a fait accompli, that the discovery of an effective prevention technique was all that was needed for folks to get on board and voila, smallpox gone. No anti-vaxxers, no gnashing of teeth. Nope, not what happened. Inoculation, the procedure we're talking about today, was the predecessor of vaccination. And let me tell you, whatever folks want to make of the safety of vaccinations, 1% of inoculated patients died. Yes, died. To put that in perspective, that's the same chance as dying if you get COVID. But here's the thing. Even if inoculation carried a 1% chance of death, it protected you from a 30% chance of death from actual smallpox. I'm no betting man, but 1 to 30 odds is a pretty safe bet. That said, inoculation was also, well, let me just explain. To inoculate yourself, you had to inhale ground-up scabs from an infected person or introduce an infected person's pus into a scratch on your body. All that to deliberately infect yourself with the disease. Not great. But if you're living in 1720s Boston with smallpox raging all around you, I'd take my chances with other people's pus rather than die of smallpox. That logic wasn't all that clear, though, and it led to the rise of all the same debates we're having now, three centuries later, as we'll hear more about in our interview with Professor Andrew Weirman, a historian of the era and author of the new book, Contagion of Liberty. But here's the rest of the story. And I'm jumping forward here because it shows you just how inane today's anti-vaxxers have become. By the end of the 1700s, inoculation, with that 1% chance of dying, had been replaced by a true vaccination. Rather than infect themselves with smallpox to prevent smallpox infection, early scientists discovered that an infection with cowpox was far less dangerous in humans and had cross-reactivity to smallpox in a process that was then called variolation, which ultimately led to the first smallpox vaccines, and one and a half centuries later, the eradication of smallpox. Mind you, though, this is the late 1700s or early 1800s. The whole germ theory of disease thing, the notion of such a thing called a virus, a nuanced understanding of the human immune systems, those things wouldn't come for nearly 50 years. So you can forgive the good folks in Boston for their healthy skepticism when they were told it might be a good idea to snort smallpox scabs when they had no clue how it worked, just that someone had told them that it worked. But now, we've had the science for centuries, and not only did the vast majority of us sit in a classroom where someone, albeit extremely boringly, explain the scientific method, the immune system, even how vaccinations worked. But take a look around you. Science, well, it kind of delivered. 
Back in the 1700s, life expectancy was 38. Yes, 38 years. And that's for a white male, you know, the kind of person who could even own land, let alone not have their body owned by someone else. And the kind of person who didn't have to give birth, which at that point carried an astronomical mortality rate. Today, life expectancy for the same white dude has more than doubled. That's mainly because babies aren't dropping dead like flies. Yeah, science. It's delivered. But look, you might say, Abdul, you can't fault people for not having lived in the 1700s to see the contrast between how many people died then and how many people live today. Okay, fine. You know where all those anti-vaxxers go to spread their bullshit? The internet. You know, that thing that started as a government science project, the product of centuries of electrical engineering, computer science, chemistry. The fact that this place works so flawlessly isn't just a matter of nature. It took a lot of people doing a lot of, yes, science to make that possible. The willful ignorance of that, while decrying the same exact process applied to human biology, that's either stupidity, ignorance, or willful disregard for the truth. But I don't even blame the myths and disinformation mongers as much as I blame people like myself, scientists. Because, as we'll learn, mistrust in science has been around. But science, well, science hasn't. And while I wish it did, science doesn't speak for itself. We're supposed to speak for it. But instead of doing the work of public education, of teaching science in a way that shows just how exciting, interesting, and accessible it can be, we've cloistered it. We've dressed it up in big words, hidden it behind elite educations, and scoffed at those who haven't had the privilege to penetrate the walls we've erected. We've made science so unintelligible that even centuries of science later, it still doesn't speak for itself. So all you scientists out there, here's my charge. Are you part of the problem or part of the solution? Doing great science is awesome. It's fun. It's meaningful. But what are you doing to let it out of your lab? To give that gift to someone else? Okay, rant over. Now for the history part. Here's my conversation with historian and author of The Contagion of Liberty, Professor Andrew Weirman. Can you introduce yourself at the tape? I'm Andrew Weirman. So tell us a little bit about why you wrote a book about smallpox several centuries ago. Well, uh, I'm a historian, right? So I was uh, interested in in college and at a young age in the American Revolution and kind of the origins of the United States and its and its history. And I wanted to understand how ordinary people experience the American Revolution. I, I thought we uh, needed to to know more about how. People in in smaller communities and and, and places uh, made decisions during uh, the revolution. Decided which side to to go with, or whether or not they would take up arms, or or what they would do during this this uh, crisis. And so, doing dissertation research at Northwestern, um, I started digging around to different communities, town records, diaries, trying to get. Um, uh, a handle on how ordinary people experience this moment and and smallpox just came out through that experience i was I was looking at town meeting records and looking at uh, diaries of people and started seeing this common theme of people talking about uh, smallpox, what to do about it, the numbers of of people who were uh, afflicted, dying, and debates over inoculation, whether whole communities should inoculate, whether they should build hospitals to stop it. And 
I, I realized I was I was on to something when I found it in sort of town after town being debated and and talked about. And I thought this is a part of the revolution that we didn't uh, know very well, mm. uh, that the revolution itself took place during an epidemic. It wasn't the war that that started the smallpox epidemic. It was it was the war that broke out during this epidemic. Mm. And of course, one of the values of history, well, not to know history for history's sake, but one of the values of history is, of course, it, it teaches us lessons for the present. Now, did you know that there was going to be a pandemic when you set out to write this book? <laughs> I, I would have hoped that there there wouldn't have been. No. So, yeah, my my I got my PhD in 2011, and that was my dissertation topic, and I had been a, a expanding it over the years to incorporate more, more places and, and over more time. And uh, no, so I was writing it and preparing to write it for people who had never experienced a quarantine and, and didn't understand uh, inoculation orders and, and cities shutting down and that sort of thing. And But as I was preparing to write my, my final draft to send the publishers, that's when uh, COVID broke out and all of a sudden – those those words like quarantine and shutdown were regularly part of uh, Americans' vocabulary, and I realized um, that my work could shed some light on what people were going through during the during the pandemic and afterward, as we sort of think about what happened and how to do better. You know, I'm an epidemiologist, and uh, back in the day, I used to have to explain to people that I was not actually a skin doctor, and now uh, half of Twitter <laughs> right. is an epidemiologist, so there's that. Um, Tell us about smallpox. Uh, how awful is it? I mean, we read a lot about it in our, our school books, but I think it's lost on people just how bad of a disease it is. Um, put us in the mind of the average American early uh, in the, the history of, of this place. What is your fear level when it comes to smallpox and how do you experience it? Smallpox was terrifying. It was called uh, the sovereign disease, the king of terrors, just known in the 18th century and previous centuries as the greatest killer of mankind, uh, more feared, uh, especially in the 18th century, than, than the plague or yellow fever, or cholera, or any other kinds of diseases that you hear about at the same time. Smallpox was known as the worst. It had the uh, highest uh, case fatality rate. In the 18th century in, in North America, um, case fatality rate um, was somewhere between 15 and, and 20 percent, usually. Um, earlier centuries, and especially when smallpox affected Native American populations, like with the Spanish and uh, in, in the 1500s, you would see uh, fatality rates greater than than fifty percent um, in those uh, populations. Uh, it had been uh, managed a little bit better, understood a little bit better by the time I'm writing by the American Revolution, but still uh, a twenty percent mortality rate, and and that's just the deaths. I mean, the people that that got it um, had severe effects from it. Right? It's it's those namesake pox that appear on the uh, usually on the extremities, hands and feet, face, and uh, could leave 
lifelong scars, but also caused blindness in in a lot of people as they concentrate around the eyes. Um, uh, long term uh, disabilities came came from it as well. A, a really uh, terrifying disease, and a disease that. Uh, people and communities did everything they could to prevent, to stop. America Dissected is brought to you by Real Paper. Y'all, it's April, and that means it's Earth Month. It probably should be Earth Month like every month because we live here. But it's time to consider the products that you buy and the impact that they make on our planet. So if you're still using conventional toilet paper, you know, the kind that cuts down trees so you can use it to wipe your behind, maybe it's time to dump that stuff that contributes to deforestation and switch to Reel's 100% bamboo toilet paper. When you use Reel, it doesn't feel like you're sacrificing anything to help the earth. In fact, it feels like it's an upgrade. And it always ships free to your door in plastic-free packaging, and you can schedule it on a subscription so it comes exactly when you need it and never have to worry about forgetting to buy any at the store. Reel is now partnered with One Tree Planted. So with every box of Reel that you buy, they're funding reforestation efforts across the country. So unlike the TP that cuts down trees, Reel allows you to plant them. I love Reel because, well, I love my booty, and I also love the earth. So it's an obvious choice. Real paper is available in easy, hassle-free subscriptions or for one-time purchases on their website. All orders are conveniently delivered to your door with free shipping and 100% recyclable, plastic-free packaging. If you head to realpaper, R-E-E-L-P-A-P-E-R.com slash AD and sign up for a subscription using my code AD at checkout, you'll automatically get 30% off your first order and free shipping. Again, that's R-E-E-L-P-A-P-E-R.com slash AD or enter promo code AD to get 30% off your first order plus free shipping. Let's make a change for good this year and switch to real paper. Real is paper for the planet and your bum. Support for this podcast comes from Marguerite Casey Foundation, which imagines a world where all communities are represented in our economy and democracy. The foundation supports leaders, scholars, and initiatives focused on building power for communities to shape how society works and share in its rewards and freedoms. To learn more about the foundation and ways to get involved, visit them at caseygrants.org and on social media at Casey Grants. What is the first known inoculation uh, in the colonies and, and, and where did inoculation come from? So inoculation is the uh, purposeful implantation via an, an incision, usually in the arm, of uh, a little bit of smallpox matter taken from one of those sores, the, the pustules, and inserted into the skin. This had been known about in a lot of different societies where smallpox had become endemic, and there's debates over where it originated, whether it was in Africa, uh, the Middle East, or in in China. And uh, in these places, um, it had been carried on for uh, hundreds of years. Europeans, and by extension, uh, colonial British North Americans were some of the last to know about it. So in the early 1700s, the Royal Society in London was starting to get reports out of out of Turkey um, about uh, how Turkish women were uh, inoculating children. They got some reports out of China at the same time. And these were, were published in uh, their 
uh, scientific journals. And in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, Reverend Cotton Mather, who was a member of the Royal Society in England, read those published reports and, and said, oh, I already know about this. And he wrote a letter back to London saying that uh, an enslaved man belonging to him, a man named Onesimus, an African man who was actually given to Mather by his congregation in Boston, had told Mather uh, of inoculation. Actually, Mather asked, have you ever had smallpox before? And Onesimus, who must have been really clever, said, uh, yes and no, and then described how he was, you know, purposefully um, infected with with smallpox in Africa, and uh, that's the, the the origin of it in America was that an African slave named Onesimus described the practice. Mather thought during an epidemic in 1721 uh, that it should be widely used, and he publicized it, wrote about it, and it caused a, a massive controversy in Boston, as some people thought that Europeans shouldn't take medical advice from African people. Maybe this was just the slave's way of tricking us or fooling us into doing something really stupid. Others thought, you know, this could work, but it needs more scientific testing. It needs more experimentation. Others thought this was playing God, that um, purposefully making someone sick to prevent a disease seems like doing God's work, that God ought to decide who's sick and who's well, um, and that, you know, people shouldn't intervene in this way. Mm. How effective was inoculation? It was uh, extremely effective. Um, and see, the, the thing about natural smallpox is the only saving grace of this terrible disease was that uh, once you were infected once and you survived, uh, you would have lifelong immunity to it in the future. The body would recognize this virus. And uh, so inoculation uh, gave a, a patient a much milder uh, case of smallpox that was much more survivable usually uh, having a mortality rate of around 1% or 2% mm. compared to 20 or 25%. Still, you know, not great, um, but this is a time before they sterilized instruments. There were all sorts of uh, issues that we could see now that, that would make it a lot uh, safer. Still, the, the, the statistics started proving it. So in every place where they tried inoculation in the, in the 1700s, and it became more and more common over the decades, it was clear that inoculation saved lives, so that protected people against uh, smallpox in all cases. You know, it's, it's fascinating, because I just want to, want to summarize the story you're telling us. There is this incredibly effective treatment that does carry some real risks in the context of an epidemic of a very, very serious, very, very deadly disease, gruesome disease that's devastating communities that comes from the lips of an enslaved African man. And the question at hand is, do we use this? And a lot of the same contours about whose medicine is this versus what does the science and the evidence tell us versus how much fear do we have empirically of the, the treatment versus the disease. These shape a lot of the contours of the debate about COVID vaccines hundreds of years later. And, you know, it's both 
um, incredible that this was a conversation that was happening at the time uh, that it did. And also extremely sad that we have not moved past this conversation with all <laughs> of the scientific progress that has come. Because, you know, when you talk about inoculation, you, you don't, I mean, there's so many things that we take for granted. You talked about, you know, sterilization, et cetera, but even just a standardized dose, right? How much do you actually need? Where should you put it? Yeah. In whom is it most effective? Like these are scientific questions that we study ad infinitum now. Um, and we can give you really strong statistics from very, very well-designed studies that did not exist in the past. And, um, and so it's just, it's, it's a testament of how far we've come and yet how far we have yet to go in terms of the social discussion of everything from science to the origins of treatment, uh, to how we, we take on, um, the conversation about prevention. It's a fascinating story. It has all of these elements of religion and race and science. And, and you're right. Um, they did argue about, and there are uh, doctors talking back and forth about uh, the, the techniques, how large should the incision be, um, uh, when is it ideal to inoculate, what season of the year, uh, what sorts of people, young or old, um, men or women. And of course, they argued a lot about um, how effective it was by race. If this is something that's safe for white people, if it's good for black people and, and different things, that was a big topic in the colonial period as well. Um, all of these issues uh, come up and, and, and come up again. And you're right that, you know, uh, we can uh, almost excuse people in the 1720s for having these sorts of doubts and questions about um, inoculation because to them it was a really strange thing. But after hundreds of years of success, both inoculations and the, and the vaccinations that have followed and the science that, that has come uh, since then, it's, it's harder to justify any kind of anti-vaccination uh, arguments today, but here they are, and they're echoing many of the same kinds of things as we see in the past. Ultimately, um, we've eradicated smallpox, and that, that is a huge uh, public health achievement. And a lot of the, the beginning of eradication came about when community inoculation started to take hold. Can you walk us through what that was and um, what ultimately tipped the scales toward you know, community-driven inoculation? Yeah, so there in Boston in, in 1721, about 280 people volunteered, or some of them were, were children, so were, you know, uh, forced or, or, or made to undergo inoculation. Um, and of those uh, 280 or 290 people, uh, six died. Um, and then compared statistically to the, to the 5,000 who got uh, natural smallpox and the and the one thousand people who who died nearly uh, the statistics showed okay this method as strange as it is to purposefully infect their, ourselves seemed better. Can I just ask a clarifying question? The six who died, they were the ones who died overall as smallpox moved, or they died specifically from or soon after being inoculated. As a result of their inoculation, okay. so and do we know? Do we know survival statistics among the others who were inoculated? The other two hundred eighty or so who who survived the inoculation. Yeah, did they all sort of live through the smallpox period or die of other causes? Yeah, they they lived uh, normal 
lives as far as we can we can tell. You know, I was looking at some of those statistics because the records from smallpox hospitals and from these smallpox doctors are not very good in the 18th century. And a lot of them would get burned right afterward because, you know, this is stuff taken from smallpox patients. They they weren't really sure how smallpox spread. So doctor's notes and hospital records and that kind of stuff mm. didn't didn't survive very often. But I did find some uh, records from the 1770s, very complete patient records. And so I looked at some of these really bad cases, people who, who were inoculated and had, they, they would write down how many pox they got on, on their face or on their body as they would try to track it. So some people would get one or two pox, that was it. They had a good experience. They survived it. Others would get thousands. And mm -hmm. so I would, I, I tried as best as I can to see, you know, some of these worst cases, would they you know, live long lives. And often they they did, even despite having a, a difficult inoculation process. But mm. anyway, uh, back to the, the previous questions about community. So over time, they were looking at these statistics and they said, look, we should make uh, smallpox inoculation as available as we can. Now, the difficulty with smallpox inoculation and what separates it from later vaccination was that inoculated patients could still spread smallpox when you when they had uh, smallpox inserted into them and they had this mild case um, for about three weeks uh, they were considered infectious they could they could spread mm. smallpox to other people so they had to be isolated in hospitals or quarantined which makes sense because it's it's just a controlled infection right it's a controlled infection. And the procedure itself was expensive, right? So if you were an ordinary worker, you had to pay the, the doctor to inoculate you, but you also had to, you know, take basically a month off of work to recover. So poor people, ordinary people could not afford the procedure. And this was unacceptable. So in these town meetings, you would have debates and arguments about how do we provide inoculation, the saving grace from smallpox to the most people possible. And uh, Boston was a real leader here. Um, in 1764, they announced a general inoculation of the whole city. They shut down the city of Boston for months at a time and provided inoculation free uh, to the poor. They contracted with doctors and doctors agreed that they would provide inoculation to everyone. The city would reimburse them for their expenses. The city paid for food for the poor during, during this time. Uh, spared no expense. Uh, so thousands of people in the spring and summer of 1764 uh, were inoculated at government expense hmm. during this time. It, it shut down the economy for a few months, um, but after it was over, uh, there were very few deaths. The city was, was spared from uh, an epidemic. And other towns and communities across the colonies, first in New England, but it also happened in the South, uh, mid-Atlantic as well, started following that model or came up with other solutions to try to um, make inoculation more accessible to everyone. And f from what I gather, um, that was that was everyone of a particular uh, group, even poor folks, but, but not always black folks at that point would have been enslaved people. 
uh, or Native Americans? What was the posture there? Were they included or were they excluded? It depended on where you were. So um, in New England, a lot of the medical advice and guides um, and in these general inoculations, it would be any inhabitant within Boston. They wouldn't say this was only for white people. It was whites and slave people. If there did happen to be, and there undoubtedly were some Native people living in Boston at that time who were probably also inoculated. Um, they did not go seek to inoculate Native people outside of these communities. Uh, they didn't talk about it. They thought smallpox was uniquely dangerous to them. Um, they also realized that the spreading of disease um, aided in colonization. Um, uh, that that uh, So there were no real guides or suggestions that you know, we should we should spread this idea to to native people, especially mm. not in the in the 18th century. Now, enslaved people is a little bit different. So, it there were enslaved people who were inoculated um, a, across America and in the South. Right, an inoculated slave carried some extra value. They would survive future smallpox epidemics. It seemed maybe a, a protection of, a, of an investment of sorts for an enslaver to do that. Um, it might make sense that they would. Uh, but it turns out that most enslavers did not inoculate their slaves. Um, that was time and money that they weren't willing to, to spend on them. If you inoculated a slave, that meant that they couldn't work for a month. There's a risk that that, that slave might, might die or be debilitated. And uh, most enslavers were not in the business of providing health care to their slaves, right? They, they dressed them shabbily. They provided them terrible accommodations and for the most part did not inoculate them, even when they knew better. Even though they knew that that would protect them, they didn't want to spend that, that money. So when the uh, revolution comes, when armies are marching through the South, uh, most of the white population is inoculated that or that point or can be inoculated, can seek it out. Um, but the enslaved population, especially in, in Virginia and South Carolina, um, uh, has devastating epidemics. And of course, um, the, the smallpox epidemic that happens during, during the revolution doesn't stay contained to uh, black and white population. It spreads west among native populations as well. So that's one of the real tragedies of this is that uh, colonial Americans learn about this process from a black man uh, named Onesimus in, in Boston, but it's ultimately black and brown people who, who are kept from this salvation. Yeah, and that, that, that was a question I wanted to ask, right? There's this brutal irony here where um, the, the, the person who made this possible uh, belongs to a class of people who are systematically disallowed from, from, from getting it. Um, war almost always begets more disease, you know, and that is true in the past. It is true now. Um, a lot of the ways that people die in wars is because of the diseases that spread in, in that context. And the revolution was no different. Um, you'd think that uh, inoculating troops against smallpox would be a real advantage and you'd seek to do it. 
that was always the case, um, you know, involving a very, uh, a very famous uh, general. Can you talk to us a little bit about George Washington's position on inoculation and uh, maybe where that came from? Yeah. So I think w- when I started this research and, and writing about Washington's decision to inoculate the troops, I don't think that it wasn't very well known. It wasn't something that was in most textbooks. And now I think with, with COVID and uh, vaccination orders and, and uh, we know more, or at least I see it a lot on Twitter, that people understand that Washington ordered the inoculation of the Continental Army. And that's often used to sort of say that the, the founders were in favor of inoculation. Um, so, so we shouldn't be afraid of it today, or it certainly isn't a violation of anyone's freedom to to be uh, vaccinated or to have vaccination um, encouraged or, or compelled. But Washington was from Virginia. He wasn't from from Boston, where these massive public inoculations were taking place. So Washington was skeptical of this process. He had experienced smallpox as a young man, as a, as a teenager. He had survived it. He knew how dangerous it was, but he also knew it was survivable, right? He had survived it as a young man. He expected most of these young soldiers in the army, if smallpox broke out, and he tried to do everything to to, to keep it contained, to, to quarantine the, the soldiers um, that he could, he thought that they'd be able to survive it too. Um, Virginia had had not had these large-scale inoculations that were happening elsewhere. So Washington kind of has a fuzzy understanding of how broad inoculations would work. So even though he knows that smallpox is breaking out, even when he knows that the British are inoculating their soldiers, he does not order it um, for American soldiers uh, in 1775 or in 1776. There are some disastrous results as uh, soldiers are dying from smallpox, especially when they try to invade Canada in the winter of 75-76. Uh, Washington medical directors are publicly urging uh, Washington to uh, inoculate the Continental Army. Washington resists. He actually actively punishes, jails some doctors who are inoculating secretly. Mm -hmm. Uh, But eventually, uh, all of these pleas, the soldiers themselves who are demanding it, sometimes secretly inoculating, the doctors, the medical directors, George Washington's wife, Martha, goes and gets inoculated in July 1776 herself. And Washington writes uh, a letter to, uh, I think, John Hancock and says, I don't think she's actually going to go through with it. But she does and and survives it and, and is uh, has, has a very successful inoculation. And it's only after that that Washington starts to weigh his options and, and waver on it. But it's not until February 1777 that he actually decides to go with his medical directors who are telling him we can do it. We can we, we know how to inoculate in large numbers. We'll rotate troops through it. It'll be fine. That Washington trusts them uh, and and gives the order. And after, to Washington's great credit, he changes his mind, right, which I think he deserves uh, a lot of credit for. Um, don't we wish more of our politicians were willing to change their mind based on the evidence that they're presented with uh, and totally do a 180 on their position, right? If only. 
And afterward, Washington ad- ad- admits uh, that that he shouldn't have waited this long, uh, that it is uh, wonderfully successful. Washington, unlike lots of other plantation owners, does order the inoculation of his entire plantation, his family, his, his enslaved people at Mount Vernon. Uh, he writes letters to the governor of Virginia saying that there should be a law to compel all uh, heads of households to inoculate their children under certain penalties. He he becomes a real uh, evangelist for inoculation after he sees how successful it becomes. Mm. Well, you know, you got to you got to admire him uh, him moving with the evidence and um, and then you know advocating for a position he once uh, he once failed to hold. America Dissected is brought to you by Outer Known. You know, I can't stand greenwashing. Like when organizations who could care less about the environment say they're doing things about the environment and then kind of fail. What we need is a new crop of companies focused specifically on making sustainable products. And that's why I'm excited to talk to you about Outer Known. Outer Known is the first brand founded on a total commitment to sustainability. Outer Known offers extremely comfortable and stylish men's and women's clothing. Every product they make has a planet first mentality meaning materials are environmentally friendly and the factories they work with provide safe working conditions and fair living wages for all their workers. And then there's the drip. You got the blanket shirt, coziest shirt of all time, available for the whole family. Amazing jeans, soft, comfortable, and guaranteed for life. And, well, Crooked Media team got holiday jackets, an instant staple around the whole Crooked office. Every outer known product is comfortable, breathable, and it fits great. They're designed to make you look and feel fantastic. And they're sustainably made for a better planet. Go to OuterKnown.com slash America today, and you'll get 25% off your first order. That's OuterKnown.com slash America, spelled O-U-T-E-R-K-N-O-W-N.com slash America to receive the 25% off discount code. Check them out today, OuterKnown.com slash America, and don't forget to use the promo code on the page for 25% off, and so they know I sent you. America Dissected is brought to you by Lomi. Y'all, trash is nasty. So the idea that keeping it in my house or my backyard so that I can allow maggots to eat it and worms to digest it and then I can use it for my plants. Yeah, no, not the kind of thing I, I really i am game for. Look, I love the planet. Every single ad you hear me read is about the planet, but eh, not that much because I hate my trash more. Actually, I know. No, no, no. I love the planet more, but I also can't stand smelling my trash. So just let's just leave it there. And you know what? This quandary, this conundrum, I've recently been bought out of because, well, I got a Lomi. Lomi allows me to turn my food scraps into dirt with the push of a button. Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns scraps into dirt in under four hours. There's no smell when it runs, and it's really quiet. Thanks to Lomi, I have way less garbage every week. It's Ramadan in our house, and so my wife wanted to make a bunch of gifts for our neighbors and friends. And so she made this lemonade stuff, and we had like five bags of lemon rinds. And then we put them in Lomi. Since we got our Lomi, we throw away way less garbage. That means it's not going to landfills and producing methane. Instead, it turns our waste into nutrient-rich dirt that we can feed our plants. We use our Lomi all the time. Literally run it almost every single day. And guess what? It's about to be spring, and all that dirt that we've created is about to go feed some plants. I can't wait. So if you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just make cleanup after dinner that much easier, Lomi is perfect for you. Go to Lomi.com AD and use the promo code AD to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to Lomi.com AD and use promo code AD at checkout. Food waste is nasty. Let Lomi save you a cold trip out to the garbage can.
smallpox was ultimately eradicated, right? This is this is one of the most successful public health efforts in uh, human history, and it took centuries <laughs> to do this. Yeah. Um, what do you think that tells us about people's ability to engage in potentially risky preventive actions that prevent them from higher risk? I mean, this is the hard part about a vaccine is that you start with health. And so you're betting, if you do get vaccinated, you're betting on the high probability of exposure. And if you don't get vaccinated, you're betting on a low probability of exposure and a high probability of bad outcomes if you get the vaccine. And this wager, right, ought to be done rationally. And if everybody acted rationally, then everybody would get inoculated because the numbers are clear, especially in the context of uh, what is a, a massive epidemic. And yet people don't always act rationally. Based on your research of this disease, of, of, of this moment in American history, what do you think that tells us about our ability to, or what we ought to be thinking about when we drive these campaigns to, uh, to promote a public health measure that we know to be safe and effective? Well, campaigns and public health measures are key. Um, after Washington inoculates the Continental Army, after town after town conducts its own inoculation campaigns, building inoculation hospitals, ensuring that the poor have access to those hospitals becomes a, a debate. Um, even after the revolution, during smallpox epidemics, you see these public efforts to uh, protect people from disease. There's a real feeling in the 1700s that they could eliminate smallpox. Um, Europeans are writing letters to George Washington and telling him uh, that not only will the United States have but they, they write first merit in overthrowing monarchy, that they're going to be the first country that overthrows smallpox. They think it's going to happen. Um, and it takes these communal efforts. What ends up happening, uh, it's, it's ironic, and I talk about it in, in the book, is that the introduction of vaccination, which should make things easier because it's safer, mm -hmm. um, actually doesn't. Because inoculation had to be done with these public efforts. Because it was contagious, they needed town meetings, you needed a lot of regulation, you needed governors and city council people on board to, to run these citywide inoculation campaigns. But vaccination, because it's not contagious, because I can get vaccinated and it doesn't affect anybody at my workplace, it doesn't affect anybody in my household, uh, it just protects me, that changed the, the calculation. All of a sudden, um, it's an individual choice on whether to be vaccinated. Doctors in early America start saying, well, this is a, a profitable uh, technique and because if I vaccinate my patients and they pay me for it, because they're not a risk to the rest of the community, it's not the government's business to regulate this anymore. Now, there can be private charitable efforts. There can be laws passed to require um, school children to be uh, vaccinated. Um, but ultimately, what we get are these big gaps. There are states communities. It creates a patchwork system where some Americans are being vaccinated publicly, others are seeking it out privately, and vast numbers 
either are refusing or most cases don't have access themselves to it. Um, and and there's uh, the 19th century goes by, and despite having all the tools to eradicate uh, smallpox, it's it's not done. Mm-hmm. Um, and it eventually it, it gets done, right? In the 20th century, there's a renewed campaign for for vaccination globally. This is uh, the World Health Organization. This is the United States with cooperation from uh, the Soviet Union to really isolate the remaining cases of 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 smallpox in in the world and to 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 vaccinate in some of the most um war-torn uh countries i think the last cases are in somalia and afghanistan in the 1960s and 1970s um but that's what it takes it takes this kind of committed uh government effort to to stop a disease, just allowing it to be a, a patchwork effort of of public and private um, isn't enough. Mm. So it's fascinating. It's it's once the risk of the treatment goes down, the amount of public effort and coordination that was required goes down, and and it was it was that public effort and coordination that was really driving folks to come and do this thing together. I think that's right. I mean, it's fascinating, right? Because because the risks of of inoculating are, are A, to you, but also B, to other people around you. And so this is not just, you know, a risk you're taking. It's a risk we're taking to keep you safe. And vaccines, the costs of them are so much lower. I mean, if you think about the COVID vaccines, they were so safe. Yeah. I mean, really just safe, full, full stop. But relative to an inoculation that had like a, you know, one to 3% chance of killing you, like exceedingly safe. And yet people just kind of wouldn't do it. And in, in, in what's so frustrating to me is that we've had even a backslide on other vaccines because of this COVID moment of mis- and disinformation. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it also helps that in the time of um, the pre-revolution and during the revolution, there was no Twitter. So at least you had like pamphleteers, but you know, the, the ability to to share and move mis and disinformation was substantially more limited. The cost of doing so was a lot higher. Yeah, I mean, there was nobody, uh, no no soldier in the revolution refused to get inoculated. There's there's no record of any. You know, there there it wasn't like half of the Continental Congress said that that inoculations were too dangerous or were some wicked plot from another country. I mean, it, there wasn't any of that. There was a uh, a rallying uh, around it um, in a way that's that's really striking, especially as you say, because it was more dangerous uh, in ways that the COVID-19 vaccine just isn't. Um, anti-vaccination in 2020 or 2023 is a, is a different animal, has different causes than the any sort of anti-inoculation sentiment was in the, in the 18th century. Hmm. And maybe it's also because we don't see the consequences so clearly. I mean, everybody has somebody who is affected, but COVID was the kind of disease where the symptoms were not out of the ordinary of something that anybody would have experienced. Tends to tends to be a really really bad cough or a fever, and everybody's yeah. had a bad cough or a fever. Um, unlike the pustules that are just so visible and obvious, and it's also in a time when when people get sick, really sick, they go away. I mean, I hate to say it, but like 
you know, we, we, um, treat sick people in hospitals. And so most people don't see really sick people. They don't come in contact with death in as, uh, carnal a way as they did back in that time when most of the time people died at home. And so I think the, 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 the death and the disease aspect of it didn't have the same kind of, or didn't create the same kind of alarm because of the nature of, of death and dying now, and also because of the nature of the disease itself. And so I think people were, it was easy for people to discount the death and the disease when it came to COVID versus when it came to smallpox, when you saw somebody get really, really bad pustules and then die in your own home, right? Which is a, a very different experience. Exactly. And I, it was also so much easier um, in, in a sense with with smallpox to quarantine and contain people because that was very natural to do. There was no asymptomatic mm -hmm. smallpox, right? You either you had it and it was visible um, or, or you didn't. Um, COVID is just a nasty disease, the kind of thing that epidemiologists warned against, right? There's these asymptomatic cases. You have to have a really strong testing program to even know who has it or who doesn't. And, and it... Um, uh, was a real problem. But as a, as a historian, the other aspect here that, that frustrated me um, is, I think, a, a, a lack of, a, uh, of an understanding of, of history and of a history of medicine, the history of public health in the United States, because it had been so long since uh, uh, public health boards uh, had to uh, install quarantine orders or had to uh, regulate vaccinations in the way that uh, we did with, with COVID-19, that uh, these restrictions felt so alien to people, that this was some government gone awry, that uh, these, these shutdowns and lockdowns were something that, that only a, a tyrant would do, right? And of course, if you look back at the history of, of disease, quarantine is, is done in all uh, governments to help stop disease. It isn't It could be done cruelly, but it isn't necessarily tyrannical. It's a way to uh, way to help people and a way to uh, a natural way to stop, especially a disease who uh, that we don't have a cure for, that we don't have a uh, a vaccine for to slow things down. That these public health orders have have long roots in American history. And I think we have to remember that one of the reasons, and this is what the uh, founding fathers talked about, it's what John Locke talked about in, in his writings, that the reason we have government is to protect the lives of the citizens, to protect each other. That's protect each other uh, uh, from from war, from foreign enemies, and things like disease, and that uh, government has a duty to protect its its people and protect their health, and that that comes first and foremost. So, um, you know, here in in Michigan, with these protesters in in Lansing who took over the Capitol and they're waving 1776 flags and stuff like that, and it just burned me up in in 2020 because like. The, the founders, people, the colonists understood quarantine and they understood, you know, freedom. Certainly they're, they're fighting for it, but uh, quarantines were never considered violations of freedom. Inoculation orders uh, uh, secured liberty. They didn't uh, violate it. Yeah. Well, if you, if, you, um, if you call freedom freedom from disease, then absolutely. And, um, you know, unfortunately, 
we we do live in an era where uh, people want to pick and choose their history because they don't understand it. And uh, Professor Weirman, we're really um, grateful to you for coming and helping us understand it. Our guest today was Professor Andrew Weirman. He's the author of the book, The Contagion of Liberty. I really hope you all check it out. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Abdul. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. With the nationwide overdose crisis near record levels, the FDA today took the extraordinary step of approving the over-the-counter sale of Narcan. Naloxone, the opioid overdose reversal drug, is now available over-the-counter, and for good reason. Opioid overdose continues to rage on, helping account for the nation's falling life expectancy. Before the FDA's move this week, it was only available under a doctor's prescription. But the drug is so effective and so safe that doctors took to writing blanket scripts in an effort to get the life-saving medication as far and wide as possible. This move by the FDA basically formalizes that practice. Narcan, the trade name for the inhalable version of naloxone, is about as close to a miracle as it gets. Opioids kill people by blocking the brain's natural breathing reflex in the midbrain. Naloxone acts almost immediately to block those opioid receptors, reversing the overdose then and there. A person can be on the verge of death and walk away from that moment as if it never happened. That said, that's precisely not what folks should do. Because one in 30 people who are treated for an opioid overdose will die of another overdose in the next year. And that's because while that first overdose may have been overturned, the underlying substance use that caused it is not. So it's critical. Just as we flood the zone with Narcan, we need to flood the zone with long-term opioid use treatment. And that means way more investment in mental health and substance use care. Part of that means extending access to healthcare itself. Which is why last week's move by a federal court judge in Texas eh, didn't help. That judge struck down a plank of the Affordable Care Act that requires health insurance plans to cover a panel of preventive services, things like mammograms and colonoscopies or PrEP treatment to prevent HIV. The case, brought by a company called Braidwood Management, argues that because the volunteer expert panel that issues the recommendations on what preventive services must be covered isn't appointed by the president or confirmed by the Senate, that they lack the standing to make binding recommendations at all. That's called a loophole in a technicality. The ruling took effect immediately, meaning that in theory, someone could be doing bowel prep right now for a colonoscopy tomorrow, only to find out that it's no longer covered by their insurance. That said, that scenario is unlikely to happen immediately. Because, well, the ACA has been law for 13 years now, and insurance companies aren't likely to want to upset the apple cart, especially in a tight labor market where offering high-quality insurance is part of what entices people to work for a company. But if the law stands, it could lead to the generation of a different class of health insurance, a cut-rate insurance that doesn't cover basic things like preventive services. And those kinds of cut-rate insurance plans is exactly what the ACA was intended to prevent. For their part, the Biden administration is already planning an appeal. But the thing this should remind us is that the proponents of our for-profit healthcare system, the folks who want to profiteer off of sick people, they'll stop at nothing to tear down this law and any law that forces them to actually provide meaningful healthcare free of charge. But there was some good news when it comes to healthcare this week. And today is a historic step toward a healthier North Carolina. When this law takes effect, it'll make healthcare accessible for more than 600,000 North Carolinians. North Carolina became the 40th state in the U.S. to expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. What this means is that low-income North Carolinians will now receive a huge bolus of funding for Medicaid, which should substantially increase the number of folks who will be eligible. And make no mistake. Medicaid expansion saves lives. 
Studies of the impact of Medicaid expansion have shown an up to 64% reduction in annual mortality among those who are newly eligible. But while there's good news on this front for folks in North Carolina, in almost every other state, low-income folks are getting kicked off of Medicaid. Why? Because the COVID-era policy that kept them on the rolls through the pandemic is sunsetting. And that means that over the next several months, we'll see upwards of 15 million people lose their health insurance. That's the largest number of folks to lose their health insurance since the first month of the pandemic, and one of the largest net losses in healthcare coverage in American history. And guess who gets hit hardest by this? Black and brown folks around the country. You know how we can fix it? Medicare for all. Alongside a story of millions of people losing basic healthcare, here's another problem you're only being forced to listen to because this is a podcast called America Dissected. At 10.13 this morning, the police department received a call of an active shooter inside Covenant School, Covenant Presbyterian Church. That's right. Another elementary school got shot up this week. This time, it was a Christian private school in Tennessee where a shooter killed three adults and three children, all under nine years old. Rather than the perpetual problem of unfettered access to guns, right-wing media have chosen to concentrate on the shooter, a former student at the school who identified as trans arguing that the attack was some kind of broader attack in an escalating battle between trans people and Christians. Look, y'all, I'm Muslim. I know what happens when people essentialize everyone with a particular identity based on the actions of one individual who happens to identify that way. And that's a dangerous brew. Because the other thing that happened this week is that the Republicans in the legislature of the state of Kentucky forced through a draconian set of anti-trans laws, overriding the veto of their Democratic governor. And all that's going to do is rob thousands of people of basic civil rights. The epidemic of gun violence in this country has nothing to do with trans people. It has everything to do with the unfettered access to guns. Considering the last story I told you about, imagine what America might be if we took access to healthcare as seriously as some people take access to guns. If I could tweak one thing about the Constitution, it would be two words in the Second Amendment, from the right to bear arms to the right to have healthcare. Guns take a lot of lives in America. Healthcare? Healthcare saves them. That's it for today. On your way out, don't forget to rate and review. It really does go a long way. Also, if you love the show and want to rep us, I hope you'll drop by the Crooked Store for some America Dissected merch. Oh, and happy Public Health Week, everyone, and Ramadan Karim to all those observing. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Our associate producers are Tara Terpstra and Emma Frank. Vasilis Fotopoulos mixes and masters the show. Production support from Ari Schwartz. Our theme song is by Takar Sazawa and Alex Uguera. Before I tell you about our executive producers, I want to give a big thank you and farewell to Sandy Gerard, who's been an incredible champion for the show. Thank you, and we'll miss you. Our EPs are Leo Duran, Sarah Geismer, Sandy Gerard, Michael Martinez, and me, Dr. Abdul Sayed, your host. Thanks for listening. This show is for general information and entertainment purposes only. It's not intended to provide specific healthcare or medical advice and should not be construed as providing healthcare or medical advice. Please consult your physician with any questions related to your own health. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the host and his guests and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Wayne County, Michigan or its Department of Health, Human and Veteran Services.